Dan Nichols, and this is an MACP podcast. I'm delighted to be joined today with Dr. Simon Lack and Brad Neal. Um, today we're going to be discussing patellofemoral pain. Um, just before we kick off, if you guys could um, maybe give listeners who aren't familiar with yourselves uh, a little brief introduction, that'd be great. Uh, yeah, so I'll, I'll kick off. I'm Simon Lack. I'm physiotherapist and lecturer. I work within private practice at Pure Sports Medicine and with uh, some scholarship athletes at the University of East London. And then here at the University, uh, Queen Mary University of London, uh, I hold a lecturer role where I'm involved in leading the MSc programme here in sports and exercise medicine. Uh, my name is Brad Neal, uh, physiotherapist at Pure Sports Medicine and a clinical researcher wrapping up a PhD uh, here at Queen Mary University of London. So if we, got, if we could kick off with um, uh, what, what things you guys are looking out for in a subjective examination that raises your suspicion of patellofemoral pain as a, as a primary hypothesis, I'll give that over towards you, Simon. All right. Um, yeah, we were, we were having a little bit of a brief chat about this, weren't we? So the subjective sort of examination, I suppose what we're really looking for here in, in starting to identify whether we've got somebody in front of us who's got patellofemoral pain is that you know are they describing an insidious onset of pain originating around the anterior knee has a almost sort of direct relationship to an extent with uh, exposure to loading activities so uh, running stairs prolonged periods of sitting are all examples squatting those are those are some of the sort of subjective characteristics that we're looking for or start to raise our index of suspicion but the other thing we were discussing is that pfp is is also a sort of a diagnosis of exclusion and that um, when we carry this through into into the objective examination we're wanting to make sure that we're ruling out other things that we know could give symptoms that are comparable to that of patellofemoral pain but those are those are the sort of key subjective markers insidious onset then we know that that there's a higher well we don't know there's certainly some evidence that indicates that there's a higher incidence in females than there are in males but again some of the emerging literature would start to uh, contest that um, certainly it's seen in in teenagers and, and can go through sort of through the generations so we're not sort of looking at any one demographic I suppose and sort of saying okay well that's, that's far more likely for them to be experiencing these symptoms so it's, it's tallying up what you're hearing and, and sort of applying that to, to what we understand as being the site and the location and the irritability and then the nature of patellofemoral pain. So a combination of um, exclusion of other pathologies um, but as well as that pattern recognition of, of um, that familiarity of PFP and how, how that presents. Yeah, I think that's correct. I think that's um, if, uh, if we could um, stick with that and uh, maybe I'll give this over towards you, Brad. Has the research guide us to a possible source of symptoms in, in PFP? So uh, um, I'm aware that subchondral bone has been hypothesised as a, as a possible source of symptoms. Are we more confident in, in a step towards that as, as a hypothesis? I don't know if we can say we're more confident. Certainly, it's the paradigm that's been explored to to the greatest extent. This thought process that load activities on the patellofemoral joint that will increase patellofemoral joint stress, aggravating the highly nociceptive subchondral bone. It's certainly got the biggest amount of evidence behind it, but I don't know if anyone, certainly to the best of my knowledge, I don't think we've ever 
prospectively identified that to be the factor that results in symptom onset. And there are some there are some other theories. Um, the synovial lining is one, and there's a small amount of research that's come predominantly out of Brazil, I believe, looking at biopsies of the both medial and lateral retinacular, looking at um, the presence of various neuropeptides, etc., that seem to correlate with people with symptoms, albeit in very much a retrospective fashion. So, looking when people already have pain compared to. Uh, compared to people that are asymptomatic. And then there is still a degree of evidence sitting behind Scott Dyer's 2005 work looking at any activity or, or combination of exposures that load the patellofemoral joint outside of its envelope of function, as, as Scott Dyer describes it. But I think if you put a gun to my head, given that most patellofemoral pain will be atraumatic in nature and that is one of the the diagnostic points that comes out of the consensus document and generally people with patellofemoral pain will be either significantly less symptomatic or asymptomatic in sedentary positions when the patellofemoral joint is loaded and complain of pain during loading activities i think the majority of patients that i see and i would expect the majority of patients that most people see i think the load-based joint stress model stacks up with the highest degree of biological plausibility. Yeah, and if I can add to that, it's, it's interesting because as, as clinicians we have this desire to try and pinpoint and source symptoms, but although we're not that further in, in, uh, in, in great detail of doing that, it also comes around a big circle of how, how relevant is it to, to, to know that source symptoms because we're not able to isolate that clinically. So uh, what we what we what we know or what we've sort of understood over the emergence of pain science, etc., is that that biomedical model of symptoms is is um, is good to an extent, but it doesn't explain a large swathe of of patients' presentation of pain. Right? Yeah. And and for some individuals, the 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 drivers of that may not be biological or biomechanical in nature there may have be a component of that and that may have been where symptoms were initiated but the maintenance and persistence of those symptoms are driven by far more psychosocial factors and, uh, than, than a biological one and I suppose yeah there's that there's that want to understand it from a structural perspective perhaps because that's what naturally we can all draw more comfort mm-hmm. from but um, but that the, the literature is moving away from that. There's this there's this critical filter that all of that nociceptive input needs to pass in order for there to be a perception of pain. So um, we have to understand that that filter really in order for us to manage this this well. Because for some individuals, the impact of that that filter is far more prominent and far more important than whether their their biomechanics are slightly out and that's resulting in that subchondral load being slightly uh, subchondral bone sorry being slightly overloaded or yeah. they're operating slightly outside of that zone of of optimal tissue homeostasis yeah. like that's that's fundamentally limited it's it's a nice thing to know at time because it gives us a treatment target but there are there are other things that perhaps are equally as important if not more important in some individuals yeah step back and look at the bigger picture of, of that pain yeah absolutely I mean there's certain things that I go through with people now you know there's a discussion about structure 
and that uh, that for some individuals could play a part in their presentation. There's a discussion about biomechanics and what influence do we think that that is having on their symptoms. There's a, there's a discussion about volume, intensity, frequency of training. And then there's this sort of, this, as I described it, as a sort of filter really, that those, those paradigms, those constructs feed in from a nociceptive perspective through a psychosocial or pain mechanisms, pain processing pathway that then is expressed as pain. And, um, and we've got to understand to what extent each or all of four of those, those constructs are contributing to that individual's symptoms. And I think that's entirely relevant within patellofemoral pain where we know that symptoms persist for long periods of time, it's quite recalcitrant to treatment, um, and that people are experiencing symptoms despite good evidence-based uh, treatment still. Yeah, and if we stick with that um, analogy, the, the filtering process, and um, tie that in with the examination, because that has its own challenge of uh, what, what we're then going to examine. So if you could take listeners through an example of, of how you would typically examine a patient with suspected PFP and, um, uh, and whether that's down the route of um, functional testing, so patients come in with an example of double head as, as the pain going upstairs, you're getting them actually on the stairs looking at how they're doing it there, the, the fear of avoidance and other things associated with that um, and, the, and the quality of what they're doing, or, or you're giving it to a combination of uh, pain provocation uh, tests or or overriding the whole thing usually as a springboard for guiding guiding your treatment. That's just quite a lot to pick through there. Yeah. Well, if I if I take take you through what would be my process, and then maybe come in with a bit more of the sort of functional and running aspects, or mm. something like that, really. But the you know, we're obviously massively informed from that subjective component. If we feel from that subjective component that, or we get indications that this individual is quite fear avoidant, that they, there's an aspect of sort of sensitisation or that we've got a disproportionate amount of symptoms to the amount of load that they're exposing themselves to, then, um, then obviously our objective examination needs to be reflective of that. And, and sometimes that could be sort of looking to reassure them that at a structural level they're able to do a lot of stuff and that yes it might be painful but look at what function you can achieve and so therefore with using the objective examination to start to break down some of their their fears um, but then also um, we're looking to identify treatment or treatment targets as you described it or, or deficits really that we know are associated with these with these with this particular diagnosis so my, my approach is often to take them in looking at a functional movement and just because I feel we can obtain a lot from that single symbol uh, a simple uh, it's easy for him to say uh, single leg squat uh, can give us an indication of how well they're willing to move and load up that knee yeah and then we might go into some uh, some specific on the couch testing just to look as we described of wanting to exclude other diagnoses so wanting to make sure that there's not an obvious evidence of a of a meniscal tear that's contributing to their symptoms or is it actually something that's more derived from sort of an iliotibial band syndrome or is it actually the fat pad that's driving a lot of their symptoms is it a quadriceps tendinopathy or patella tendinopathy you know all of those sort of differential diagnosis of anterior knee pain um, and then we're saying no this is actually something that is much more retro patella and so okay right well we've excluded that with our objective examination then we're looking to perhaps 
stress it um, in certain ways, palpate the retropatellar surface or the soft tissues that sit um, between your, your fingers and their retropatella. Um, or Clark's test, which we know is sort of quite uh, sort of sensitive, but not at all specific. But we can use those sometimes as tools, but they're not critical, I don't think. I feel like we've already got a good indication that this is where the symptoms are coming from. We've excluded potential contributors, and then we're identifying what deficits they've got, so that then we can go forward and treat those. Yeah. And then, you know, that might then carry on to them doing more functional tasks like you described, stairs, or if they're coming in with symptoms of running, then, then exploring an aspect of looking at how they're running and how much that might be contributing to their symptoms. And could we, could we explore those, the, the deficits you refer to a bit? Could you explain to this? Yeah, what, 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 well, like the, the, sort of the, the review that has looked at um, deficits associated with patellofemoral pain, uh, Nenki Langhorst, and then we're sort of updating uh, an aspect of that too, is, is that, um, uh, you know, that proximally we know often they're weak in their hips. Um, we've shown level one evidence that their timing is different around their hips in terms of the sort of gluteal activation relative to TFL. Uh, we know that, that very commonly they're experiencing some quadricep weakness, We've seen evidence that distally that um, the, the, they're tending to not control that that pronatory moment and consequence consequential sort of internal rotation and so on that feeds up the kinetic chain. So we're looking to sort of see are those deficits there and and do we then need to to target those perhaps with a distal intervention in the form of an orthosis proximal one with rehabilitation local one trying to build quadriceps strength, modify pain, perhaps by taping or, you know, we can get indications with that with a treatment direction test, you know, sort of low die taping at the foot or taping at the knee or a manual glide, you know, to start to steer what route is going to be effective with regards to our treatment. Okay, so yeah, so using it as a, uh, a as a springboard, but also as markers that you could then go back reassess uh, mm. uh, late data uh, and see if mm. we we're improving on those deficits. Yeah. as you said, but yeah. is, is that similar how you would um, tackle an examination with a with a patient? Yeah, I don't think there's a huge difference, and there's probably a reason for that because Simon and I spend quite a fair amount of time together, but. I think from a from an assessment point of view, I completely agree that we're looking more for a treatment target than we are necessarily from from a, a where does the pain come from perspective. What I do think it can give you some nice information regarding is about the irritability of the joint, and that will to a point dictate where we take that treatment. So, physiotherapy is an interesting beast, and there are lots of people now that are fairly against. For, for no particular reason, passive interventions like foot orthoses and, and taping when the evidence base for their short-term use in terms of a pain modifier is, is very strong. For example, the number needed to treat for orthoses is just four, which is fairly low. And as a result, if we see lots of discomfort with retropatellar palpation, if we see a high degree of sensitivity with patellofemoral compression, I don't process that, in, that information by thinking, that's where this person's pain is coming from. It must be mechanical, it must be joint stress. But if those things really stir up a high degree of symptoms and someone has told me subjectively that their irritability window is quite high, mm. I'm perhaps more likely to defer to some of those things to try and modify their pain before 
whilst the desire to get someone exercising is good, if we have a very irritable patellofemoral joint, perhaps someone has a degree of patellofemoral dysplasia, if we come along and give them some quadriceps exercises, even though they may have quadriceps weakness, chances are you'll probably make that patient worse, mm. and, and that's just not sensible. So across the board, I think we would do things fairly similarly. From a running perspective, in terms of running assessment, and, and when we look to involve the intervention that's become termed running retraining, I think the big differentiator is the way someone moves versus how their muscles function. If I see someone who, and it's not the best term, but we'll go with it, if we see someone that, that moves badly when they run, but they also have muscle deficits, my bias, and there isn't really any evidence to back this up at the moment because nobody has looked, but my bias would be that we target those muscle deficits first before we move on to run retraining. Whereas if we see someone that does not have these muscle deficits, if their hip strength, their quadricep strength, seems to be left equals right or within a normative range and James Self's subgrouping work very much refers to a group of strong, stiff, predominantly males with PFP that do not have this this muscle deficit behaviour, that's when I'm more likely to think about run retraining, particularly if we see people that aren't moving particularly well. There are, of course, a group of people that don't have any muscle deficits and move quite well, and, and perhaps they're just overloading their joint across the board, and as a result, education and, and load management is going to be more my, my treatment target. So are you, are you looking at that, that strength deficit with, with use of clinical uh, tools like a, a dynamometer, or are you is that more analysis of movement in the example of the running or, or, or the single-leg squat? I think it's important that we stress that Altered kinematics doesn't necessarily mean altered strength. You can see someone who, when you use a dynamometer, and I am fortunate to have a dynamometer available in clinic, and, and I do very much put that in place. I think it offers a lot more than just a simple Oxford one to five scale that, that we're taught at undergraduate education. I think that offers a lot, but you will see people that do have, for example, a poor single leg squat, lots of hip adduction, contralateral pelvic drop, excursion at foot level etc but when you test them with a dyno actually their strength is quite good and that should dictate you towards more of a movement retraining approach whether it's running whether it's stairs whether it's squatting as opposed to someone who doesn't move particularly well and, and actually has a fair amount of muscle deficit that that would be more your target but I think you can do both in the sense that often in my initial assessment if time is a factor I think you can do a simple Oxford grading or show people the difference between their symptomatic and their asymptomatic side for key movements such as sideline, hip adduction, AD, AD internal external rotation, these types of movements. But once we get further down the track and we're looking to decide where our exercise interventions are going to go and when someone's ready to be progressed, I think a dyno offers, offers a lot. Um, and if we if we stick with that and uh, give another question towards you, Brad, if if um, the picture one of our listeners has got a patellofemoral pain patient on on the treadmill, they're they're analysing their gait. What biomechanical variables would you suggest that that clinician uh, has on their radar and, and is looking out for? You mentioned hip abduction. Is there any other aspects, or, or whether that strays away from the treadmill and even in just functional movement, as the stairs that you also mentioned? What biomechanical variables would you would you is the research pointing us towards as having an effect on PFP? If we look to the evidence base, the strongest literature seems to be around hip adduction, more so in females than males. It must be said. So, from a risk factor perspective, there is one paper from 2011 that Brian Noren led 
that shows that a high hip adduction does seem to predict the onset of patellofemoral pain during running, but only in females. It must be stressed and, and no one else has followed that up. If we look to the retrospective, the case control literature, our systematic review that we published a few years back, that deficit still seems to be there when we compare people with pain to people without. The, the strength of evidence still sits towards people having a higher hip adduction. And I think the, the next step would be the early run retraining studies. So Brian Lawrence 2011 paper and, and Rich Willey's 2012 paper, they both show that if you pick a group of females that have a higher than average hip adduction and retrain around that movement, you can have a fairly strong effect on pain. So we have a little bit of evidence to say that it's a risk factor. We have a lot of evidence to say it's an associated factor and we have a small amount of evidence to say that if you change it you can change pain and that's about as a complete story as you will get within musculoskeletal research so that's the one that's that's the biggest target the question for me will always be can we measure it so there's a paper by Chris Watman in Physical Therapy in Sport that shows that if you can't put someone on a treadmill, a single leg squat or a single leg hop down will predict how people then ascend, descend stairs or run. It's important to stress that it's a normative group and generally people without pain will move in a more controlled way. If you look at case control studies, generally the standard deviation will be much higher in a pain group and that's just because pain makes us move in a variable way. So you have to question whether we can take that literature and apply it to people with symptoms. There's some evidence to say that from a 2D camera perspective, which is what most of us use in clinic, you can reliably measure hip adduction and the minimum clinically important difference seems to be five degrees and there's evidence to say that we can pick that up with the 2D camera but again it's in a normative group who will move in a fairly controlled uniform way so the outstanding question is can we pick this up in clinic when we use things like a 2D camera in people with pain we've got a project running at the moment that will hopefully go some way to answering that question but it's it's nowhere near ready to be discussed but what i do in clinic is i will look both side on so trying to look at the sagittal plane and my rationale for that is whether we use 3d system or a 2d system the sagittal plane is the most reliable it's the one we can see the clearest with the highest degree of reproducibility and if we look simply at stride length so where someone first makes contact with with the ground, looking at their position of their ankle relative to the position of their knee, if their ankle is ahead of their knee, in essence, if they have an extended knee initial contact relative to that given pace, they are running with an overstride. And therefore their contact time is just gonna be a lot higher than someone who runs with an optimal stride length. And when contact time is higher, gravity pushing down, ground reaction force pushing up has a much longer influence on the way that the body moves. And that's why strength doesn't seem to correlate with movement because you can have very strong hip AV ductors, but if you're in contact with the ground for a long time and gravity and ground reaction force are pushing you into AD duction, doesn't matter how strong you are, gravity and ground reaction force are gonna win. There's no way you can balance that scale. So what I encourage people to do is look side on, look at stride length, and then even if when we look from behind, we measure and we see more than 20 degrees of hip A deduction because that seems to be the, the cut off in terms of what's okay and what's not. Looking side on will still give you your strategy to retrain it because unless we change that stride length and contact time, anything else we do in the frontal or the transverse plane will be futile. Yeah, and so taking that in, you both, you both um, resonate the same, the same story that the examination 
um, organically feeds into the treatment, just as you said there. Um, is there anything else, if you, if you could go into a bit more depth, maybe uh, um, away from the running, but any other innovative treatment strategies you found successful in the management of patients with PFP? Could I give that over towards you, Simon? Yeah, I, my, my interpretation of how we get success with this is that we appropriately um, address what we term the key drivers of their symptoms. So I think there's definitely not a one-size-fits-all for this group. Treatment definitely needs to be targeted around what are the key deficits that we're identifying. And if we've got a movement pattern deficit, the likelihood is we're going to have our greatest success by addressing their movement pattern. If we think that their their, um, fear of avoidance and their um, sort of their concern that they have about their symptoms is one of the most is the predominant driver. Then addressing that or or aiming to manage that is going to likely result in the most favourable outcome. So I, I couldn't pick one thing. I use rehab uh, in, in the form of exercise. I use some run retraining or some movement retraining. I do a lot of education about load management, but also about pain mechanisms and things that can drive it. I talk people through what contributing factors their their MRI findings may have on the symptoms that they're experiencing or not. Um, and so there's another educational component in that. I do use taping, I use foot orthoses distally in terms of uh, trying to help assist with some movement retraining or, or modify the loading profile going through the patellofemoral joint. So it's, I think that we've got this collective toolbox and we want to be dipping in appropriately for the right individuals with the right tool. And, um, and, and there's a, my, my interest has been a lot about exercise prescription and one of the critical things that I have seen with regards to how we conduct that is making sure that we take that to an appropriate level in order to uh, likely achieve a, um, a good long-term outcome. The best example I've got of that is a FACUDA paper that, that is the one study that's looked at a proximal intervention over a year follow-up. So theirs was the longest follow-up period and they genuinely delivered a strength training program. So they took people to 6, 7 out of 10 intensity, working up to 3 out of 10 pain. You know, those were the parameters that they were working at. And the rest of the proximal literature that I've looked at generally challenged people with a neuromuscular or strength endurance level and, and very few took them to that true strength um, end point. And, and none have looked at power. And some of the work again coming out of Brazil has talked about how there is a power deficit, a, a rate of force development deficit um, in people with patellofemoral pain as well. So perhaps there's still scope for us to extend that rehab further to optimise their long-term outcome by, by addressing some power deficits too. So I think rehabilitation is being done in the main, but I think there's a critical thing about doing it for long enough and at an appropriate intensity in order to achieve the outcomes that we're after. So uh, if I was to sort of pick one area that I feel like we need to uh, ensure that we're delivering upskill ourselves even more or, or optimize the quality thereof that that's that's what I would that's what I would suggest and that's what we talk about a lot on the course um, that Brad and I teach uh, you know we split off and I do an exercise component of it and Brad does his run retraining component of it um, within this course so that we, we try and upskill people out of the back of that in those domains that we think are really important to address um, and why do you think that's not happening currently is that is that because pain is a big motor 
motivator for compliance to, to the rehab program oh, is, is I reduced. And, I don't and think that. I think that there's a real critical thing of clinicians placing genuine importance upon it, mm. and that then there's a realistic discussion early on about the timeframes that it takes to get there. You know, like there's this. To, to achieve strength training, we're looking at three to six months of engagement in a program. If someone's genuinely weak, like proper weak, and they've got this femoral pain, and they want to do something of a fairly high demand, like a run or, or whatever that, you know, some sort of gym-based activity, they, they will need to get strong. I yeah. think that that's critical. But that's going to take them three to six months, definitely. And that's got to be communicated well. The expectations of that patient has got to be well-managed. And, and there's this big thing of, look, you're on a journey here and this is the journey we've got to go through in order to get you get you right um, and sorted in the longer term. Yeah. There's, I think there's two other reasons as well that, that we talk about fairly regularly. One is uh, the, the fault lies with the papers sometimes. They either don't describe the exercise intervention well enough or they misdescribe based on a set of descriptors so within Simon's BJSM review out of the 14 papers only three of them actually delivered what they described they were going to deliver based on our interpretation so if we don't describe things well within the literature it's pretty difficult for people to then take that and, and run with it and I'm sure Christian talked about that on the, the knowledge translation podcast that you did a few weeks back I think the other issue if, if we look inward I think it's undergraduate education or even post-grad education to a degree, I don't think it's taught well enough from an exercise prescription mm. perspective. I think we could do a lot better yeah. if we look up to, to say, the S&C coaches. And again, working at Pure, we're very fortunate to act within an MDT and have access to, to good strength and conditioning professionals. And the honest answer is primarily, predominantly across the board, those guys teach exercise better than we do. Mm. And, and we need to aspire to that. And that starts with better undergraduate education yeah certainly that late stage rehabs and exercise I mean the yeah. stuff that they're bringing in and the, the, the exercises that they're getting doing and the variances that they've got a, a lot a lot greater at that level and that, maybe that's just because physios need it, want to take them through that early stages and that's important and then they the, the carry over into later stage rehab maybe sits with a strength and conditioning coach or appropriately skilled strength and conditioning coach but yeah it's a good proposition I feel we can I think there's this sort of there's this grey zone where it's sort of they've done very well with physio they've done some entry level rehab that rehab has progressed nicely in that end stage yeah. stuff you know some physios may want to upskill themselves in that and, I, and I'm all in support of that but but for some, that's not what their priority is, but they need to recognise that there's still a job to do, mm-hmm. uh, and particularly within this patient group. And so hand that on to somebody who's, who's enthusiastic to finish that job off. Really. Yeah. yeah, and highlighting the importance of that dialogue, at, you know, the initial contact with the patient, saying this you've is the journey that's going on. You've got to manage expectations well. Yeah. You've got, like, there's no point in saying someone, it's a bit like the tendon stuff, you know, if you sort of say to someone, oh, we're going to get your tendon pain better in a couple of weeks, telephone pain, the same sort of story, you know, if you're going to say, oh, you're going to get that better in a couple of weeks, well, I think, I think you're, you're hostage fortune. It's just, it's, it's unlikely. And, We've, we've just got to be honest about um, the time frame and the investment that it's going to take in order for them to get better and then yeah. try and optimally engage them in that process and you know target or, or tailor the intervention such that it's realistic for them to do and something that they have enjoyment in doing and can see the benefit. You know, yeah. I'll just think of one example, a lady I saw in the NHS, if we've got enough time, but um, uh, who the other day who, who had zero interest in doing exercise in a gym um, and that type of stuff. So we had to make it 
appropriate for her. So we, we talked about stair climbing, using stairs as a rehabilitation tool, getting her to load up a backpack that she just sort of puts on and does two stairs at a time. And, and, it, and it was something that she was like, like that, that fits within my life well, mm. um, rather than going down the gym and trying to squat or do whatever. Yeah. That was never going to happen. So there's no point in us plugging away trying to make that happen. Yeah. But we're still looking at needing to overload her at the right intensity and the right frequency in order to, to hopefully improve it or achieve a good outcome yeah so applying the same principles but you're individualising it yeah. to, to that patient which hopefully is, is, is the care patient centre care we're, we're trying to encourage if I could uh, just finish up with the guiding listeners um, who are left wanting more PFP gems from uh, from yourselves that uh, you've got an upcoming course I believe it's on the 14th of April um, yeah. with a few places left it's at the uh, Royal London Hospital so uh, any listeners wanting to develop their skills in, in the areas you've said in exercise prescription, running retraining, patient education and, and all the aspects of load management um, and improving their ability to deliver tailored interventions that you just highlighted at the end there, then I suggest that they visit the MACP um, website and grab one of those uh, few spaces left. And if I just finish up, thank you both for your time today and uh, I look forward to uh, reading your, your upcoming research that, uh, that you both mentioned as... Uh, come forwards on PFP. Great. Thank you very much. Thanks, Alice. Thank you.